This is the Education Gadfly Show. Every four years, they come from the north to plunder our gold. Yes, it was all about and, Norway. And that is exactly right. But we hate. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, please join me welcoming our very special guest for the week, a man who enjoyed curling before it was hot, Chad Aldis. <laughs> hey, good to be here. Chad is our own vice president for Ohio policy and advocacy and also joining us this week, Alyssa Schwang. Hey, Mike. And I would like more on that introduction. (laughs) Well, I'm trying to do, you know, a little Olympics tie in. The Olympics are now over. And the, the, the big news towards the end, I feel like for the American team was that we actually got a gold in curling. Woo-hoo. Very nice. Which, you know, look, the, the people are saying there's some disappointing results this year. Only 23 medals for the American team came in fourth, uh, got beat by, you know, tiny countries like Norway, not we to mention need, our we friends need up more, north. More Norwegians, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. All every right. four, there was a great, I think it was the Washington Post headline that was something along the lines of like, every four years they come from the north to plunder our gold. Yes. It was all about and, Norway. And that is exactly right. But hey, we won. It was, uh, I think, the men's curling team. One gold. Women's Very exciting. Now we can shift our attention to important things like the English Premier League. Oh, oh no, God. no. I thought you meant like, yes. like the Big Ten basketball tournament or March Madness. Come Guys, on, Chad. Oscars are this Sunday. Uh, <laughs> and, I've, and I've seen every best picture. Then you're, you're beating me. This is our second or third year doing that, this right? This is our fifth or sixth year. You oh, have? Wow. We've seen them all? Okay. Yeah, we've seen them all. Well, this only shows that Chad's children are grown up and, you know, now now old enough that they have a life of their own. Uh, well, once they're four, you can kind of leave them on your own, right? Yeah, Just, well, it may be in Ohio. <laughs> hey, so... Electric ex- stoves. Excited to have Chad here. Chad r- runs our policy shop out of Columbus, Ohio. He is in town for a Fordham board meeting, and we're excited to get his perspective on education reform in the real world world let's do ed reform update so chad you know we have talked about on this show about how 2017 was a surprisingly good year for education reform there were some big uh you know, big movement in many states on charter school policy for example kentucky passed a law several states uh, got closer to equity for charter funding in our view, there was also lots of good things happening on the ESSA front in terms of smarter accountability systems and the like. And yet, the Ed Reform crowd feels down in the dumps, generally, uh, beaten up, uh, sense that uh, you know today's crazy politics are tough. And then we see a new analysis from Rick Hess uh, and his colleague at AEI. They went and they looked at the websites of gubernatorial candidates. We got 36 governor's races this year and found very little... Uh, enthusiasm for education reform. And and so, Chad, we look, we have pushed all this power out of Washington down to the state level. We said, all right, states, your turn. Take the ball and run with it. They don't seem interested. Give us some reason for optimism here. What is going on? <laughs> Not a slanted question at all there. Well, the, uh, the positive thing, if you choose to look at a glass as half full, is uh, they're not excited about education reform, but they're not really that excited about education either. Out of the 260 plus candidates that AEI looked at, 121 of them, 45% said nothing about education. Yeah. So clearly they're going to be doing stuff. The other thing is if, if you know... A lot of education reform issues, not exactly the most popular kids in school when they were there, right? <laughs> yeah. you know, hey, more testing, too. more accountability. You know, if you're a governor and those things are important to you, it may not be what you lead with on your website. Well, and that's what's interesting is to say, okay, 
if they're being quiet, maybe we should hope that that just is a good thing. That, uh, but, but there are still plenty that when, when they do talk about education policies, and some do, there is a lot of bashing around tests. There's certainly plenty of people running for, uh, as Democrats who are bashing Donald Trump and Betsy DeVos mm-hmm. and trying to tie Republican candidates to them, especially on school choice. I, I mean, so, so basically what, what, what you're holding out hope for here, Chad, is that maybe secretly a lot of these folks do want to do good work on education reform. You know, again, that was a glass half full, which as you know, uh, working with me well and uh, long enough, that's not my normal predisposition. <laughs> right. Uh, right. So this guy is falling. Okay. What, Alyssa? I mean, I just, I like the way that Rick went about this question, but I do wonder if at the end of the day, I don't know if I can take a website and, you know, the two paragraph blurb that they put on education as like a policy proposal. I'll take a budget as a policy proposal. And we don't have those yet. The things that they're writing on, like anti-testing, there's a really limited amount of stuff that a governor could do regarding that. <laughs> we still have, you still have to take state tests. Like these are still like, I'm just the issues that they're pulling to the forefront as reacting to public opinion and less fully formed policy statements. And, you know, anyone can put up a website. Anyone can run for governor. Like, let's see yeah. as the election continues, what people are actually proposing. Right, that, that's fair. And look, I think we all need to do a better job putting some ideas out there on the table for, for governors to get excited about. They, they are generally talking about career and technical mm-hmm. education, uh, both Democrats and Republicans. That clearly the, the, is having its moment in the sun. Uh, you know, it's, it's our time to go and mess this up like we've messed everything else up. No, just kidding. But, you know, the question is, how can we steer governors in a good direction on CTE? Great to say that, hey, not everybody needs a four-year college degree. But, you know, if, if we really want more kids getting solid technical credentials, two-year degrees, one-year credentials, especially starting on those while they're in high school, we have got to change the way we do high school. I mean, mm-hmm. right now, there are very few kids doing any serious technical training in American high schools. I bet it's five or ten percent. Uh, so, you know, we have got to get governors really mm-hmm. committed to say, look, we've got to rebuild our CTE system. Yeah. You know, part of it's a system, but part of it is also what we've allowed to happen over the last 20 years where career and technical education or vocational education or whatever you want or however you want to phrase it has been the last chance, the last hope, how mm-hmm. it has developed a uh, a, a sort of a connotation of being, if you can't go to college, if you're not a good student, this is for you. And that is not a good reflection no, of no. modern day CTE. But as long as that's in the hearts and minds of moms and dads, me as the parent of two high school mm-hmm. kids right now, if that's in your heart, if that's what you're thinking about, yep. then you're you're going to be very resistant to whatever programs are implemented. Yep. We need more PR. We need people, people like Mike Rowe. People like in Ohio, Governor Kasich, who are committed to all jobs having dignity, all jobs having respect, coming out Mm -hmm. and making that case publicly. We need to make sure that these CTE things are not just something for low-income students or students in urban areas or students in rural areas. They're they're great options for all kids, including suburban kids. Mm -hmm. Yep. And kids who are doing well in school versus, you know, oh, maybe that one's just not college material. I agree there. Yeah. Um, I was surprised uh, in the analysis that, you know, right now we're talking about CTE being the, you know, great bipartisan issue. Uh, Early childhood used to be the great bipartisan issue. Mm. um, And it seems to be a lot less so these days based on this analysis. Yeah. Well, you know, Republicans don't want to raise taxes and they're broke. These states are all broke. It's also true. 
I mean, here's, and, and this is where it gets tough. I mean, it's only going to get tougher as the baby boomers keep retiring and taking all the money, you know, but uh, if you want to do, um, you know, more on pre-K or even K-12, yeah. you want to spend more, you want to equalize funding, you, all these kinds of issues, it is tough right now. I mean, we see this in Ohio. Uh, when you got a billion dollar budget hole, it kind of puts a chill on new ideas. It sure does. It's a huge limiting factor, but you know... It, also looking at Rick's analysis, so another thing that jumped out at me is how much there was uh, candidates on both sides were, were appealing to their base. Yeah. Now, this shouldn't surprise us, but it also means, assuming they don't control every branch of state government, that, that what's on their website might not be what we... What mm-hmm. we see at the end of the yeah. day, Democrats aren't going to necessarily be able to get the huge school funding increases for the budgetary reasons you noted, or or uh, universal pre-K or early childhood education. And Republicans, uh, half of Republicans that responded to this, that, that had website information, were supportive of school vouchers, more than than had expressed support for charter schools. Yeah. So, you know, and and you're probably not going to see 30 new voucher programs. Mm-hmm. So so Rick and, and company should check back in after the primaries and see if we start to see some tacking towards the middle. All yeah. right. Fair enough. Well, you haven't left the completely gloomy, Chad. So well, then, uh, Glass half full, Aldous. Give me another minute and I, and I can do that. All right. <laughs> That's all the time we got for Ed Reform Update. Now it's everyone's favorite Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. Did, did you finish your Olympic watching this past I weekend? I did. I yeah. did. I really enjoyed it. It, got so a, it did got a little long, I have to say. It was dragging a little bit, but I really did enjoy it. I mean, I thought the, the ice skating, you know, that's mm. always a woman's favorite. I yeah. just really enjoyed that. Love the gala exhibition. And the gala was pretty cool. I don't know. I really get the panda. There's a lot of panda for me in that final <laughs> thing. But I think they were uh, tigers, not pandas. Oh, I made this mistake like multiple pandas. times. Oh, okay. Do you, do you remember the pandas, you know, we Mike? Didn't, we didn't. We we ended up not watching the finale, so I did. Uh, right. Well, there was there were white tigers from South Korea, and then there were pandas from Beijing, which is hosting twenty twenty two. That's right. That's right. Lots of animals. Yeah, yeah. Right. You know, uh, always a good reminder that we uh, pe- people are upset. As I said earlier, only twenty three medals. If you do it on a per capita basis, we really look bad uh, as a large right. country with. Not that many medals. And wow. so, you know, which is good. We, we've done reports on this before when people yes. used to talk about, well, we do, America does poorly on Tim's and Pisa and does great yes. on the Olympics. Well, now we do poorly on everything. We do bad across well, the board. one of my right. first reports when I came to Fordham, I have to say. And I thought, wow, this is, there's nowhere to go but up after this report. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I loved that report. Comes that out. was so good. Ah, hey, right. we, we did go into down a few rabbit holes. <laughs> All right, Amber, what Anyhow, you got for we us? got a new report from the University of Arkansas, Pat Wolf and others, that compares the productivity of charter schools to traditional public schools in eight U.S. cities. Do you guys see this one? Productivity. 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 Jinx. <laughs> this is the same group uh, that's been doing these finance studies. I don't know, but nobody keeps up with this stuff, but maybe me. But Fordham took the first look at the differences between charter sector and traditional sector in terms of their uh, finances in 2005. Yeah. 13. That was my first study when, was we, when I first came back. <laughs> I didn't have anything to do with it. It was very well done. <laughs> well, they've been at it for 13 years is yeah. my point, And they're yeah. still churning these things out. Uh, this time they're looking at differences at the city level, specifically in Atlanta, Boston, Denver, Houston, Indianapolis, New York City, San Antonio, and Washington, D.C. Okay. 
Uh, they examine productivity as measured through cost effectiveness and return on investment. So both those things. Cost effectiveness is calculated by taking the average NAEP scores achieved by each sector and dividing by the respective per pupil amount. The cost effective measure is the amount of NAEP reading and math points generated from each $1,000 in per pupil revenue committed to each sector. Okay. Uh-huh. And then the ROI calculation, this is again the amount of return on your investment over 13 years, is more complicated. I will say that. Uh, they must convert the average learning gains produced by each sector to the economic return of lifetime earnings. And they use, maybe remember, remember this one, Eric Hanischek, I don't remember the year, but he estimated that a one standard deviation increase in cognitive ability leads to a 13% increase in lifetime earnings with 70% of those gains persisting each year. So this is kind of what they use as the, as the foundation of how they're going to talk about lifetime earnings. Average learning gains came from prior credo calculations using that matched virtual twin okay. thing between the two sectors. Then, it's much complicated, <laughs> then they compare learning gains relative to the average statewide earnings in each city to get a return on on investment in terms of yearly income. If anybody what? can follow oh. that ROI, it is so complicated. Okay. It's complicated. Yeah. But but hey, it, it it's Eric Hanishek and you know you gotta sometimes you just gotta kinda put the put the faith in the Eric Hanishek stuff because that's what a largely like was the premise of some of this um, work. As for cost effectiveness, they find that for every thousand dollar in school funding Charter schools produce an average of 4.34 points more on NAEP reading than traditional schools and 4.7 more points on NAEP math. And then they say it basically equates to 32% around that advantage for reading and math, respectively. Charter schools in every city examined were more more cost-effective in both reading and math, although it was, as you would expect, differences vary greatly across cities. In Houston, charters were just 2% more cost-effective than TPS. Mm -hmm. And they talk about, hey, TPS and Houston are pretty darn effective and productive too in terms of their, when they looked at both both sectors, they were both pretty highly productive and effective. While in Washington, D.C., charters are roughly 67% more cost-effective in both reading and math Interesting, right? Because both the sectors are getting a lot of money per yeah. pupil. But, <laughs> right. The, yeah, but the public traditional public sector gets even, even more. more. Right. Yeah. I mean, they both uh, get ridiculous. Those amounts. High. Yeah, it just gets more ridiculous. Um, as for ROI, they find on average that charters produced a 38% larger ROI than TPS. Boy, sorry for all these. Another way to say it is that there's a higher return of $1.77 per dollar in the charter versus TPS sector. So in other words, they try to give you a couple different ways to think about what this ROI means. Um, and then they say, okay, well, let's also look at kids who don't stay in the charter sector the entire time. Let's say maybe they just in their charter, in their education for half the time in a charter school. And in that case, charters provide an average of 72% more in projected lifetime income per dollar invested if the student had attended the TPS for 13 years. It's complicated, you guys. <laughs> Um, Anyway, big picture, a Houston charter sector showed the smallest ROI, similar to how they had the smaller Mm -hmm. cost effectiveness. And same pattern, Washington, D.C. had the largest ROI. And then they talk about, well, it's not generalizable, but we did have New York and we had these other cities that are all over the country. So there's that. And then I saw, I don't know if you guys saw, there was a quote from Pat in one of the newspapers this morning where he said that most of these greater productivity gains were coming from the lower funding, not the dramatically higher performance. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. in that case, you know, potentially charters could produce even better achievement if they had more money. Right. Mm. Or 
they might look less productive if or, they get more money and the results don't get any that's right. better. That would be the other hypothesis to test there. Right. So I've heard some people question, the, can we get at selection effects here right. in these cities? Yeah, that's right. And and I think it's very difficult. I mean, when he starts talking about they use the credo methodology to match the kids, you yeah. know, and they've got them all matched on, I don't know, 12 different variables maybe. Okay. Um, but... Yeah, I mean that's that's that was their take at trying to really address that okay. um, that that you did, using that virtual twin methodology from from Credo. Did yeah. they get into it all? And they kind of touched on funding, but like kind of the surrounding atmosphere of the attitudes towards choice in each of those cities, because I could see that having an effect too. Yeah, no qualitative. Okay. No yeah, we can check that stuff. against some of our, our our best cities for school. Yeah, choice, which uh, studies is yes. one of my favorite studies that we've ever put out. Yeah, no, look, but look, here's here's the important thing to know is that first of all, when people say how well do charter schools perform, it's no longer correct to say the findings are mixed. I mean, I feel like the findings are very clear that urban charter schools mm-hmm. outperform traditional public schools, mm-hmm. and they have a growing advantage over them. There are a few perhaps outlier places, where, but but on the whole, that's the case. And charter schools continue to get much less money than traditional public mm-hmm. schools do. And so they are getting more bang for the buck. Right. Now, I think if you talk to people, certainly in charter schools and advocacy folks, they'll say, look, <laughs> that's great and all, but we'd still like more money, money. please. Because yes. <laughs> it is <laughs> really hard. hard. And you're yeah. getting trade-offs, you know, fewer charter high schools have like football teams and stuff, which yeah, that's right. is important to some kids. That's right. And, yes. uh, and look, I, on the funding key, I, I've always been interested in this notion that, hey, wouldn't it be great if we could spend more money in education and feel confident that that would lead to better results. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, especially in places where, you know, you look and you say, all right, th- these are low income areas. They deserve to be spending more money on their schools. It's not fair that they don't have the tax base. Problem is, you know, for years we were trying to pour money into those places and didn't seem right. to do much good. That's right. That's right. Uh, and so, you know, with the right accountability, with choice, with competition, you know, the hope is that, hey, mm-hmm. we can finally turn on the spigot and uh, expect, you know, have both greater fairness, which is important in its own right, but also better results, right. which is really mm-hmm. what we're after. Here. And and have them, equip them to do ROI studies on a number of initiatives that they, and inter- interventions that, you, that they try. Yeah. I mean, yes, I said this was complicated, but the fact of the matter is it needs to be done more often because, yeah. you know, we're trying so many things. And when you talk to district leaders and, and you say, well, how did that work? Did that work better than this or that? Yep. They don't know the answer mm-hmm. um, because these are the types of studies that aren't done a lot. Yeah. Um, so anyway. I'll just put a plug in for trying to figure out, I'm a former evaluator, how to evaluate the success of all these things yeah. that are tried in yeah. these places. So you're saying that ROI is A-OK. <laughs> ah, way, yeah, to, nice. way to end. <laughs> Always on a bumper sticker. Okay, that's all the time we got for this week. Until next week. I'm Alyssa Schwank. And I'm Mike Petrilli at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.